Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And it's so funny that I'm talking. I always wonder if this is my actual voice, because I just talked to my guest before he came on. We were talking, and I guess my voice is a little bit different. And the only reason I say that is, uh, this young gentleman sent me an email, and he had listened to the Liz Gillies episode, and he enjoyed the interview, and then he went off in the email to ask if I really talk like that, and if radio people talk like we do, and I I don't know. I, I guess, I think this is how I talk, but it was interesting because I sat there when I did stand-up comedy, I had, people would say, you have a different voice when you're on stage, which I didn't know. They said, yeah, it's much deeper. So now I'm talking, I'm going to be subconscious from now on, and we'll find out because I had just talked to my guest about beer, and uh, he'll tell me if my voice is the same now as it was a few minutes ago, and my guest is uh, Tom Snyder. How you doing, Tom? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. So now, does my voice sound different from when when I was just talking to you about the beer? No, not. I mean, seriously, not at all. Because I, I probably like you spend all day, most days, in a studio with headphones on, recording people or myself, and you you have a standard a standard style to your voice that doesn't change. I wonder what the kid meant. I don't know. I think because you know, so many times we see these. Uh, you know, I mean, growing up, I grew up back east. I know you're from back east. And, like, the radio, like, the morning zoos and stuff like that, the DJs would be like, hey, this is Mark the Shark. And just voices where you're like, hey, this is Jimmy, the voice of Des Moines, Iowa. Like, they would have these totally phony voices. And I, I don't know, I guess he but he's he was from the Midwest. Real nice kid. But I was just, it threw me off because I'd never been asked that question before. What, my, have, do you remember the Columbia School of Broadcasting? That yes. Always, everyone always talked about where radio people went to learn how to talk radio. My sister, who was a DJ, uh, studied there, and they I, some of the tricks they taught, like, you don't say W, um, you say double, and then you put an H in front of the U, so it's double U. See, uh, and they say, it, it won't sound that way on the air, but you say it that way. Um, so they were all, I, I think it was a sort of a phony world where they... Had tricks for you. Well, I want to talk about first of all your book, and then I want to talk about your career because it's very interesting. And you're, you're an animator. You've been a, you, and you went to school on the main line in Philadelphia. You went to college at Swarthmore, and so That's right. you were down in my area. But let's talk about the book first. You came out with a book. It's called "Is Is Anyone All Right?" Now you have a background in writing, and you have the background with Doctor Katz. But how did you decide to write the book? And how did you cast people to be in it? And what made you really go after the audio book? Uh, part of it. Well, yeah, it's cool. Uh, I originally was writing it as a stage musical um, because I've I've written stage musicals all my life in college, and you know I was a teacher when I first met my wife, and we wrote a bunch of musicals together, and then I've written them for clubs, and uh, I just decided I wanted to write a bigger um, romantic comedy stage musical, and when I got Partway through it, I said, gee, this would be fun to write a, as a novel. <laughs> I wasn't really partway through. What am I saying? I was really almost done with it. I'd written all the songs. Uh, I'd written the, what they call in musical comedy or stages is the book. So you, you, wrote, you wrote this in the beginning. You were writing it specifically for being on stage. That's correct. And then I thought, ah, let's, let's, let me try writing as a novel uh, just for fun. And because I've written some books in the past too, and I wrote it as a novel, and I got an enormous kick out of it. And then I thought, damn, I had to make an audio book out of this and bring in uh, my actors and singers that I had been because um, I, I practiced all my songs, you know, with local uh, people from Boston. I, I'm Cambridge now, but in the Boston area, we have Boston Conservatory and Emerson and all these places where you can study musical theater. So I, I had all these great, this great talent, and I thought, I'll just make an audio book with my studio and release this thing as an audible.com book without ever having released the, the, the book book, which it turns out you can't do. So I released the book book. Well, how, okay, how, do, you, how do you release a book book when it's a musical, which I think that makes no sense. I think if, if you want to release an audible book because it's a musical, you can't release a musical in a book because a book, unless it's a pop-up book that has those little <laughs> ding, ding, dings, it's not going to work. So what, why did they tell you that you couldn't release this just as 
uh, uh, well, it just turns out that uh, the rules for Audible, which is the fastest growing sac- sector of publishing, even compared to digital books, they they say in order to get a book on Audible, you have to have a published book, just in general, not just a musical book, but of any kind of book. So I had converted my musical into a novel where I had the lyrics written sort of as poetry, and uh, I wrote that, and. With that under my saddle, then I said, now I'm going to make the audiobook of it, <laughs> which I did, and then I got rid of the, the book book, um, and I'm not selling it, and I'm just selling the audiobook, because I'm really intrigued with this sort of genre-busting thing. Uh, you know, the normal audiobook is uh, like eight hours, 12 hours long, depending on whether it's, you know, the author and the length, but then... Mine is the length of a musical uh, comedy, you know, a stage play, so it's about two hours long. So it's a very short audiobook. And the way I see it, uh, Steve, is that um, there's a little something in there for everyone to dislike. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, book people are going to say, well, the music kind of slows down the book. And then musical people are going to say, mm, your narrator kind of, I'm not used to having a narrator in a musical, and um, so I'm. It, it's going to be fun to see whether I can have a couple people out there say, "Oh man, this is a really cool way to experience a musical comedy." Now, is this the first that you know of musical audio book? Is this the first of a genre, or have there been other ones? There has not been another one that I can find. Now, it's it's possible that historically someone went back and. Did you know South Pacific or something with special permission with actors as a special one-off thing? But I looked all over the place and could not uh, find any. So I went out, um, and this has got to be just between you and me, Steve. But uh, I trademarked the word audio musical, and the way I did it is I combined the words into one word, and then I put TM after it. There you go. I'm done. That's good. But see, it's funny because you put the words together because my show, Cooper Talk, is one word, but it's a capital C and then a capital T. And the one internet radio station that plays it, they kept putting it up wrong. And I said, no, it's Cooper Talk. And they said, well, you know, well, people might look at it and just think we can't spell. I'm like, don't worry about it. It's like, it's my branding. It's not, it's not, it's Cooper Talk because I came into the problem is when I would sit there and I would Google to see if anyone wrote about my show. And if you wrote Cooper Space Talk, all this Anderson Cooper when he had a talk show came up. So for yeah. you, it's a great idea for putting them together and it's, it's that's brilliant. I have also capitalized the letters, uh, both letters with the word uh, crammed together. I think brilliant minds think alike. Actually, it's a pretty old trope and I think that anyone who tells you they, they don't know what it, it's all about is... I don't know where they've been living in the last 20 years of marketing. <laughs> so so what is the book about? And then how did you find that people... Because for me... Wait, are you there? Yeah, okay. I am. Okay. That, was, that was your phone? Uh, I just want to make sure it wasn't me. Um, no, for, yeah. for me, the whole thing... Like when I moved across country, I rented audiobooks from the library and I taped them. And I would listen to them. And a voice makes so much. But for like your idea, I think listening to something with the different voices in the musical, I think would just be fun. I mean, so how did you come up with your story? How did you come up with the characters? And how do you cast people that you thought were right and then get and make sure that the musical was balanced with the book? Yeah, it's these are hopefully all questions that anyone who authors a stage musical asks themselves, uh, you know, with a, a couple differences. I am... Um, um, I, I follow the old rule, write something that you know, and so it's basically a story about me. It's about a guy who was a teacher who lived in a college town who had OCD or a, a mild case of OCD and so was kind of forever fretting about his elbow hurt and he was wondering if it was elbow cancer. And um, he falls in love at the local pub with a gorgeous woman who we can't even dare to talk to and um, there's a bartender and the boyfriend who are sort of egging him on and there are a couple other people a roommate and then 
as they say in the business, uh, everything gets wacky and people fall in love and out of love. And um, there are some good guys and some bad guys. Uh, so it's basically my story of how I how I survived my 20s. Now, did you ever think you had elbow cancer? Uh, yes. And by the way, I'm still convinced. I I the same thing years ago. I got in a car accident. And I hurt my sternum, and it would always it should have healed. And I, I went to my doctor, and I thought I had sternum cancer. And my doctor laughed at me and said, "There is no such thing as sternum cancer." But I'm the same way yes. as you. I still think, I think I might be the first to ever have it. Yes, I may be the first. And um, for a while, my ankle hurt, and I thought, "Oh my God, it's migrated to ankle cancer." Um, but. Uh, you know, it's got, I feel better about it now, uh, thanks to, um, I was going to say therapy, but therapy was useless, thanks to growing up, or gr- growing something. So, so now when you, when you finally write the book, and you decide to go into this audio version, and as we said, you thought it would just be a hop, skip, and a jump, you didn't think that it would be such a pain in the ass to get it on Audible, that you have to actually write <laughs> the book. When, do you have people in mind that you're going to cast... Are there people from your past? Are they old friends? How do you cast it? And then how do you deal if someone says to you, hey, man, why didn't you cast me in that part? I'm better. I mean, how did the whole process go? Did you use friends or did you audition actors? You know what? Um, For every animated TV show I ever did, I used friends. I made lots of friends early on in the comedy world, and I always went back to them, the same guys. over and over again, or, or their friends. And it was one big club, and we enjoyed working with each other. On this, it's such a specific thing, because you have to find someone who can act, whose voice sounds about the right age and background, who can sing. Um, and uh, it, so it's a, it's a trickier thing. So I just did, lo- I have a recording studio in my uh, office in Cambridge, and I just spent, mm, I would say, nine months bringing people in, auditioning them. And I'll tell you a trick I use for um, auditioning uh, voices at first, because all these students are so very busy. Um, they're in their own productions, and they have an enormous course load, even for musical theater. And uh, so I put bulletin boards up at the different schools, and I said, if you would like to audition for a female part or a male part, you know, I'd describe it. Um, but I, I said the same thing. I said, take the song from Oklahoma, uh, the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical that uh, was People Will Say We're In Love. And I said, just sing the first uh, 32 bars of the thing, or eight bars, I forget. And, and I said, do it a cappella and call this number and leave it. And I chose it. Be, are you a musician, Steve? You know what? No. And, you know, it's funny. I always am, I'm very mad at myself that I'm not, and I'm, it's nothing, it's just because I have no talent. My dad played the sax. My brother was a drummer. My sister played the French horn and the cello. Me, I just sucked. I tried, I, yeah. I tried to pick up guitar. You know, maybe I, I was talking to someone who said, oh, I can't play music because of my vision. I'm legally blind to one eye. So now I'm going to blame it going, you know what? I couldn't get the chords right because I didn't see them. I just, <laughs> I, That's all right. I wish no, yeah. I would because I have a good friend of mine is a drummer for Jason Aldean, and he was just over the other day, and he actually just played Fenway a little while ago, and they're coming back there, and I sit there, I'm like, man, I go, I go, do you know, like you're you're sort of like a rock star because you play this big band. I said, I I'm so pissed that I can't play instruments, and now you 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 have a very good musical background. Yeah, and so. <laughs> It's true. You know, I, I was thinking about being blind in one eye and can't play the chords. And I was thinking that might explain why Stevie Wonder is such a bad musician. Yeah. <laughs> no, he is both, so he's covered. <laughs> he's fucked, man. Yeah. Um, so, no, so no, you, you, you asked me if I did music because these people would call in. Oh, yes. So, um, but the, the song I chose, um, and I asked if you knew about music because there's a little musical concept that you might be interested in, and you might be able to hear it, um, is that songs now tend to be, uh, pop songs that are in musicals tend to be more and more in the blues scale 
or in the rock and roll scale, if you, you could call it that, where there aren't so many half steps. And so um, it's like, I think I'll go back home. I think I'll go back home, child. Yes, I will. It's a very small range of notes that, uh, that a lot of pop music is being sung in, whereas the, the section I had them sing from Oklahoma, from People Will Say We're In Love, go, uh, at the end of the verse it goes, People will say we're in love. And so those are just little half steps that are in between uh, the major scale that often don't get represented in pop songs because they don't use that many chromatic chords. And it was amazing, these you know people who had been studying and in the high school plays, the, the ones who just on the phone when they left their message couldn't distinguish between the half steps, I thought, well, I'm not going to waste their time. And so if anyone who called who could sing just that phrase, I'd say, yeah, come and do an audition. And uh, I paid everyone for their auditions, which was kind of fun. It always surprised them. They said, who pays for an audition? I know, you're not, you're not in L.A. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I said, no, you got to start asking to, you know, you're working hard coming in for an audition. And uh, I finally narrowed it down to my cast of five. Uh, if this was in a theater, it would be called like a black box play or theater because it has a very small cast and the sets are very simple. Um, but so uh, once I ended up with my five, it was great because I brought them in sometimes to be singing their songs or fixing up their songs. And sometimes I brought them in to be acting out scenes with the other characters that they're in the show with. And uh, uh, so it, it, the whole thing was just produced, you know, right in this one little room. And it was, I think everybody had fun. You know, even the musical theater majors said, God, I love the stage, but this is really fun because you get to get it really right. You get to really, you know, perfect it. Yeah, that's what I would think also, just for the fact that as, you, you know, once you, if you're in a musical production and the acoustics suck, it's, it's going to throw you off because you're used to singing some way. But this must have been cool because you could also, I'm sure you could redo it. It's not like, you know, if someone loses a line. I mean, was that the process? If someone, like, forgot a line, you would just restart over? Or would you just go from the top and run it? Or would you sit there and break it into segments? Oh, no. Um, I ran it more like I would run an animation uh, session with people in the booth where you'd say, um, you just go, and if either one of you wants to stop and read the line over again, or if I want you to stop, I'll interrupt you. And don't, I said, don't ever apologize if you screw up a line. Just say, I want to do that again and do it again, because I, with digital editing, I can, you know, make it fit back in. You know, um, you need a genuine authentic emotional performance but just because they didn't get it right the first time doesn't mean you can't edit it all together correctly and sometimes you know it, it was a way of replacing weeks and weeks of workshopping because let's say someone had to go say someone's line is uh, I'm sorry there's so many ways you could read that because it could be mm, I am sorry or mm, I'm sorry and, uh, you know, David Mamet, you know, always maintains that actors should be able to get it right the first time just from the context. But I just think that's bullshit. I think that, you know, everyone's sort of trying to figure out who their character is um, with the other person. And so it was really fun letting people experiment. And they'd say, I, did I sound angry there? And I'd say, yeah, you did, but it it kind of fit, and they'd say, you sure? Let me try it again, a little less angry. And Then after they go, I get to hear all their different takes and say, you know, I think they were right. They were right. That, that works best. Now, how long did the whole process take from the recording, not from the auditioning, but from the recording? How long did it take for you to get this to a point where you were, felt right about it? And then did you play the music, or did someone else play the music? Or, you know, besides, I mean, I know there's music, they sing, but... How was the musical music actually brought into it? Yeah, well, back to the question of how long it took. Um, this is going to sound insane, but the whole thing took two and a half years because you're doing it in stretches. Sometimes you're writing, sometimes you're editing, sometimes you're having singers come back in and they're not available. So 
you can't, it's not like a movie shoot or a you know a TV season where you're just doing the whole thing solid for nine weeks or ten weeks or whatever. Um, so, but uh, yes, it, it took a long time, uh, years, um, where I've worked on nothing else. Um, Jonathan Katz, who's my good friend, who's in Doctor Katz, and I, you know I have been complaining that we haven't worked on any projects in two and a half years because I've become so obsessed with this thing. But you ask another, oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I, so I wrote the music and the words uh, for the songs, and I'm a musician, I play guitar and piano and bass, and um, so I would compose the stuff and put it on, um, and play it, uh, record it on what's called MIDI, are you familiar with MIDI? Uh, not really. Yeah, it's a, it's a music format that is highly editable, so that then I could um, go to a friend who was a cello player or go to, and I'd written like a, a cello part, but um, I could go to them and have them substitute in a, a better cello or a bit. I'm a, I'm a good piano, I'm an okay piano player, but if I needed something that sounded jazzy that was beyond my ability to play, I would have them substituted in. But all done, you know, in my studio or me taking the music over to their studios. Now, how did you come up with the uh, title? Well, because it's five... Um, it's funny. Uh, you know when I was saying there's a little bit for everyone to dislike <laughs> in this musical, which is a great way to pitch a show, I think. Yeah, it's always... But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, another group that could have trouble with it are people who want their musicals to be about something serious, like about, a, you know, Hamilton or um, AIDS or war in Africa or um, cancer or, um, you know, I'm just thinking of the many musicals I've seen in the last five years or um, massive sexual identity crises, etc. And, uh, I decided, uh, you know what, I forgot your question was, but, and I'm also getting bored with what I'm saying. Oh, I'm listening. What, it's, what, what, my question was, how, what was the title? How'd you come up with the title? Oh, yes. So the title was, I have this story about sort of regular folks. There's one guy who has some OCD. There's a girl who has one leg that's shorter than the other, enough so that she has to wear an orthopedic shoe. There is a girl who is somewhat on the autism spectrum. Um, there is a guy who's from a different culture, and he is having trouble feeling relaxed and fitting in. And so everybody is just fine, basically. Everybody is going to be okay, but everyone is also wondering if they're all right constantly because that's kind of my view of i was thinking back to, to the 20s and we were all sort of the walking wounded thinking what is wrong with us um and so the title is anyone all right sort of reflects these five people and looking at their lives where at any one time they seem a little bit preoccupied with are they enough are they too much are they are they something? Are they unattractive? Whatever. So it's just a, it's a, it was a, a way of getting at my own memory of, of you know, those, those years when you're in your 20s, do you remember them as being particularly hard? They were, you know, I, it's, well, you don't really know who you are. I always say, you know, when I, I tell people, like when I was in college, you know, we were all punks. I mean, that's not lie. I mean, you know, we were good people, but people are like, now they go, oh, these these kids are acting up like Justin Bieber and all them. And I go, well, you know, we were punks when we were that age. And if we had, yeah. all, that, if we had all that money, and people were like, oh, I can't believe he's drag racing a Ferrari. And I said, hey, if I was at that age and so I got off my private jet and someone said, hey, Steve, you want to drive a Ferrari down the street at 100 miles? I'd be like, hell yeah. You know, yeah. we don't, I mean, yeah. you're that age and we forget as we get older that we, I mean, we weren't like punks like a punk, but we were just, we were, we were kids and it's a hard time because you're, you don't know what you want to do unless you're, let's say a doctor or someone who knew from a certain age they wanted to do it. 
but if you're creative and I'm creative, so we're, we're sort of lost. You don't know which way you're going to go. Yeah, it's true. And you don't know who you're... Well, I, I, I was in a... I kind of was happy after college because all, all my friends from Swarthmore, who had all been hippies, you know, and sort of were renouncing private property <laughs> and being um, very progressive, suddenly I was amazed they were all going off and becoming doctors and lawyers and architects and, you know, professional. They were joining the professional class. And I thought, oh, I thought we weren't going to do that. I thought we were all going to just hang out. Um, but I was lucky because I was a musician in college. I was in bands in college, and, and I had a recording contract with Capitol Records at that point. So I, my band was playing in New York, and so I got to continue that sort of being a, a punk, right. you know, <laughs> being playing professionally for for quite a while in New York. And then when I finally gave that up, I became an elementary school teacher. I got tired of hauling around my Hammond B3 and two Leslie's, which are the big whirling speakers that go along with it. Um, and, you know, unpacking a truck at, or packing a truck at three in the morning after a bar gig um, is not as much fun as you'd think. Well, and, now, uh, now what were you like as a kid? I mean, when did you know you wanted to play music? When did you find this talent? And then you end up teaching, and then, you know, you, you've written and you have a good sense of humor. What were you like as a kid, and how did you end up at Swarthmore, and what was your major? Yeah, uh, well, in reverse order, my major was French literature. But going back to, as a kid, I was a complete geek. Um, um, I'm 66, uh, so I was born in 1950, and when I was 12, which would have been uh, 1962, this was before, you know, computers back then were the size of gymnasiums. Um, I bought, I mean, excuse me, not bought, you couldn't buy a, a computer. I built a computer in my basement um, out of parts that I, I'd go by the phone company in my town and say, do you have any components that you're getting rid of, relays or, you know, tubes? Or, and I built a really big digital computer in my basement uh, that my parents had, so I was 13, no, yeah, I wasn't 12, I was 13. I, you know, put, I was in a science fair at Brandeis showing a computer when I was that age. And my parents actually let me stay home from school to stay in the basement building my computer. And I had um, no social skills. And that has not changed. Um, I still continue to be sort of a, uh, a solo act. But... Um, I did, you know, my sister would come down and bring her girlfriends down to the basement, and I had, you know, insulation wire, you know, copper wire insulation in my teeth from stripping wire as I'm engineering <laughs> my computers, and I realized this is not gonna, is not gonna work for me socially. So I pretty much switched over to uh, musical instruments. Guitar was my first, and then. No, well, piano and guitar was sort of simultaneous. And my mom um, actually had been um, on Broadway in musical comedies with Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, back in the 40s. And um, she was um, a dancer, but she used to take me to the shows all the time down in New York, and me and my sister. And we got to meet, you know, go backstage and meet, you know, Mary Martin. You know, or, uh, these are people, you know, she was in, she was in, you know, The Sound of Music. They're legends. And so it was, it was really very inspiring. And I was the little boy, you know, at, uh, at the intermission in the bathroom, singing all the songs at the top of my lungs because we'd had the records playing at home. And we had those big old music books sitting on the piano that not only had the notes, which I couldn't read, but uh, had the guitar chords, and you can figure out how to play piano just playing chords with those old guitar chords, and that's I was sort of self-taught that way. I still don't read music um, as in reading notation. So now, Although I'm, a, oh, I'm sort of a music theory geek. Um, everything I do, I do to geekdom. 
Well, that's I good, I take though. it all the way to geek. That's good, though. So now, now, how'd you pick Swarthmore? Um, well, it was easy. Um, see, I fooled another one because you thought I was bright because I got into Swarthmore. But um, I applied to Amherst, Middlebury, and Swarthmore. I didn't get into Amherst. I didn't get into Middlebury. But I got into Swarthmore, which was my backup, because when it said, um, any, did any relatives go here on the application, I said, see attached list. And, um, you know, there are several buildings there named after my Quaker, uh, uh, Quaker grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. I mean, there's no way... I wasn't going to get in Swarthmore. I was such a legacy kid. And also, I was curious the entire time I was there, thinking, why am I not getting kicked out? You know, because I did so little academic work. And then I realized they couldn't kick me out. They had to. They must have gone to professors and said, you got to give this kid a pass because, uh, gee, I wonder if they admitted it was the legacy thing. It seems ugly, but I couldn't get kicked out. So you couldn't that get kicked out. There was a funny comic who said, he said, at college, at first I was on academic probation, and then eventually they put me on academic house arrest. That's funny. <laughs> and that's what I was, academic house arrest. I couldn't leave, but I couldn't get kicked out either. So now how did you end up in New York playing music? I mean, and especially seeing that, you know, that's a big jump from, you know, the school to, in New York. Well, I had sold some uh, tunes with a buddy uh, when I was um, uh, just a, a teenager uh, before college um, to, and they got picked up by Capitol Records, some songs I'd written. And so I had a rec long-term recording contract with them. So after college, I just kept my band going. And um, we were you know, mostly playing in upstate New York because that's where the really big roadhouse clubs were. Um, you know, we weren't like an art band or anything like that. We, uh, the, in upstate New York, there are roadhouse clubs that, you know, are big enough for 2,000 people, most of whom were Hell's Angels back in those days. And uh, so it was, it was cool because you got a lot of experience playing in front of pissed off <laughs> Hell's Angels. Um, so, so the, the jump to New York wasn't that hard. Uh, and then my buddy, my songwriting buddy became a recording engineer down in New York. So we had free time in a studio down there. Um, and then uh, eventually, you know, I just settled down, you know, later in my twenties and became this elementary school teacher. Now is that, thought that I really thought that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. But, was that in New um, York or was that in Boston? I was in Boston. Okay, so you, my, you sister had, my sister had gone to this uh, teaching school, and she suggested to me, so I followed her there. Now, how did you get involved in the comedy scene and the meeting of Dr. Katz and the whole squiggle vision? How did that all happen? I mean, it is what did, were you fascinated by comedy, or how did you start meeting these people? Yeah, well, I, I, it's kind of two stories. I've always been fascinated by comedy because I grew up in this suburb where I felt like such an outcast. I didn't feel like I could understand anybody or their values, their golf clubs and their country clubs. But I had heard Bob and Ray albums in the late 50s, early 60s when I was a youngster, um, and also Nichols and May. And I just fell in love with that very dry, sort of uh, sketch-based uh, comedy duo stuff. And so I'd always loved it, but what happened was, well, while I was a teacher, I, um, it was back in 1979, I think you could buy an Apple One then, um, but I bought a TRS-80, which was the first personal computer you could buy. I hadn't touched a computer in years since I'd made one as a kid, but I started programming while I was a teacher and wrote a bunch of software um, that I sold to McGraw-Hill, the publishing company, and then I started a software company, and that um, blew up into, you know, 170 employees, and so I left teaching and ran that software company. Um, and eventually, as like any software company, you know, you're in addition to hiring coders and, 
and marketing people. You're hiring artists to do graphics for you, etc. And one of the artists uh, and I really hit it off, um, and I wrote a little two-minute comedy, even though I was supposed to be coding. <laughs> I was writing software, but I wrote a comedy that I recorded playing both the voices of a psychiatrist and his son and had her illustrate it. And then I wrote a little macro on uh, the I IBM PC that would animate it by squiggling it because she didn't know how to animate. Okay. And so then I had this two-minute um, demo of me being a doctor with a shrink with a son. And I was always traveling for the software company, you know, out to Silicon Valley. And while, while I was out there, um, uh, I had a friend in L.A. and he said, hey, you know, I work in the sports department at HBO. Maybe I can get someone to look at it. And they looked at it and said, hey, um, this is clever. I, I knew nothing about the entertainment business. And they said, this is really good, but you know what you need is talent. And I was like, hey, <laughs> fuck you. And then, <laughs> and then I said, oh, oh, I see what you mean. People with talent. And and they see, I said, uh, yeah, I'd love to have someone else who's funnier than me do the, the voices. And uh, so they gave me a list of people and turned out Jonathan Katz, who was probably my favorite comedian of all time. Okay, so he, you were a fan of his. A huge fan. But mostly I hadn't seen him in clubs because I wasn't going out to clubs a lot. I was, I'd was i seen him in the movie. Uh, it was a David Mamet movie called Donna, uh, starring Donna Michi called Things Change. Yes. And um, Jonathan played a stand-up comedian. And his joke was, so he was playing a Vegas stand-up comedian. And the joke he told him the thing was, he said, ladies and gentlemen, I've lost my dating instinct. Uh, recently I was at a party and a, a starlet came up to me and asked me, she'd give me a ride home after the party because my husband was out of town. And I turned to her and I said, look, if you'd known your husband was going to be out of town, you should have made alternate travel arrangements. <laughs> and it killed me. That kind of dry thing I hadn't heard since Nichols and May almost. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'd love to meet him. And it turned out he lived in, right next door, basically, you know, in my town. And uh, so I went over and introduced myself to him and played in me doing this stuff, and I said, how'd you like to be the doctor? And uh, we have been very, very, very close friends ever since. That was probably in 94, and uh, not a day goes by we're not on the phone, or a week goes by that we don't have lunch, or, and we're always dreaming up new animated shows. We did a lot of shows together back in the day. Well, when you when you did that show, what you know, it's when I think about it because it was it was on was, it was on Comedy Central or was it back then it was a comedy channel, I believe. Oh, it was Comedy Central at that point. But what was different was was a squiggle vision. A lot of people weren't used to that because they're like, wait a second, you know, people more <laughs> listen to comedy. But now, how do you? I mean, I know HBO liked it, but how do you sit there and then change that two minute sketch into the full twenty well twenty two minutes after commercials? And then, did you guys have a choice of what comics you brought in? And did you start writing it together? And did you try to incorporate Jonathan's jokes into the show? And did you ever think that people would just go crazy over the squiggle vision? This is my favorite story. I, it, because since I had a software company, and the software company was thriving, it was doing just fine, and we were growing, and, and this was sort of a lark for me. You, you know, my partners in the software company... Um, you know, we're saying, what are you doing, Tom? And I said, oh, don't worry, I'm just working on weekends. But I said to Comedy Central, I'll do it, but I'm going to need nine months to create the first episode um, because we have to figure out the format and everything. So we took nine months and we auditioned people. Uh, John Benjamin, uh, who is in Dr. Katz, and Laura Silverman, who's Sarah's sister, uh, were people we auditioned and kept. And we... Um, we kept on using the same squiggle vision. We improved it a little bit, so, um, but not much, you know, because it it's pretty hard to watch. <laughs> but uh, we, uh, so we finally had our first show, and we sent it down there, and because uh, we were up in Boston, we sent it to New York on, a, on tape. Those were tape days. This is before digital. Oh, yes. And uh, the producer uh, called back a woman, 
who was the producing the show, and she said, uh, "We got it. When do we see the real thing?" I'm not kidding. That actually—it's so much fun <laughs> that that actually happened. And I said, uh, and I, I wasn't taken aback or anything. I was like, "Dude, that—that that is the real thing." I said, "We're going to work nine months on it, and that's nine months of work right there." And she said, "Oh, it could be so much funnier. It could be so much better." And I wasn't being bratty. You're just going to have to trust me. Was, I was so busy with my other company, and I said, "You know what?" If we're going to work that hard on this thing and you don't find it funny, this is we're in the wrong business, obviously. But they went ahead and put it out, and then we had, you know, we started on our second episode and third episode already, and that episode got an Emmy very shortly thereafter, and it was so rewarding for me going forward because I was, I think, I was in my forties, early forties at this point in my life, but. As I was getting into entertainment, it was like, yeah, people can have theories about your your show, your Broadway musical, and say, well, but the music slows it down or whatever. And in a court of law, every theory anyone had about Dr. Katz not being funny enough at the beginning or whatever could be proven. I mean, it's logically fair to say what they said. It just doesn't make any fucking difference if you go to an artist. And you've asked them to make something. You should either take a chance on them and take what they give you, or go to the next person. You know. Um, so I've never accepted notes. Um, I'll, I'll share stuff with friends. You know. As a matter of fact, the audio musical. I, I'm not just pushing it here, but the reason I got into that is because Dr. Katz was essentially to Jonathan and me an audio show because we. Finish. I'd ended up with Lauren Bouchard, who be, uh, was a kid I hired um, back then. Who's gone on? He produced. He created Bob's Burgers and a bunch of other things. But uh, the three of us would make a 22-minute audio cassette and listen to it in our car driving home, and listen, show it to friends. And if people laughed or didn't laugh, you know, I mean, we'd make. It wasn't focus testing exactly. It was just to see if we loved it. And if we loved it, we'd say, print it, and then, and only then, give it to the animators and say, have fun with it. And uh, this woman who had been, you know, working with me on the original thing, she became the head animator. And uh, one thing I promised her at the beginning, I said, I will never give you a note. You get, you, you design Jonathan Katz and make him cute as a bunny and make Ben even cuter than a bunny. And make Laura pretty, but a little bit scary. And I, I just gave her some rough notes, and I never gave her a note once after that. I think Jonathan gave one note to the animators that they had to be careful not to visually give away a punchline early. But other than that, it was a self-running shop, and we had six or seven really fun seasons of Doctor Cats. So it, it, again, now, what do you, do you still? Where, where's you, where's your Emmy at? Um, well, it's uh, it's in Jonathan's house. Okay. You mean physically? Yeah. Yeah, Jonathan. Um, Jonathan keeps everything, and I keep nothing. Okay. We also got a Peabody Award, um, which is even higher than Emmy, if you can believe Explain it. Explain the Peabody Award, because I've had a few people on that were Peabody Awards. Me and my girlfriend were talking about it. What exactly is a Peabody Award? It's it's an award for excellence in artistic. Uh, I don't know, but it was funny when we went in to get our at this at the ceremony. Um, Maria Shriver, who was then married to Schwarzenegger, was there to get a Peabody Award for a documentary she had done, I think, on start, uh, on hunger in Africa, and so it was that kind of thing. Um, so funny, Jonathan walked up to Schwarzenegger in the in the party room beforehand and said to him, this is so perfect. No one else can write this kind of line. He said, Mr. Schwarzenegger, I just want to thank you for being so strong. <laughs> <laughs> so, how does Schwarzenegger react? Did he get yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, after Dr. Katz ends... Where do you go? Because you you have you know you have the animation, 
you still have computer stuff, you're a musician, you could go back to teaching. Where do you decide to go and where do you shoot your career? Your Where do you angle for? Well, at this point, my company had two divisions, the software division and now the animated animation division. And um, we weren't sure if we were going to take a victory lap or what, but um, it turned out that Steven Spielberg was a huge fan um, of Dr. Katz, and he was just starting up with Katzenberg and Geffen um, DreamWorks. So they had us out and asked us to uh, create an animated comedy for them, um, which we did. We wrote uh, we created a pilot for them, and um, it starred um, David Cross and Stephen Wright, the comedian, right. and um, Jonathan Katz, John Benjamin. Um, who else did it have? Can't think right now. But um, and we did uh, the pilot for them, and then, believe it or not, I, and I'm not hard to get along with. That's why I said before I'm not bratty, but. Katzenberg and I did not get along. He wanted to have somebody living at our studios in in Cambridge um, while the show was being made. And I said, well, we did that during the pilot, and it's just two young guys who wore very expensive loafers and played ping pong or foosball on our table all the time, and we constantly had to tell them to shut up when we were recording because they were on their tiny cell phones, and and I said, it's just, we can't, we can't do this. And he said, is this, a, is this a, a deal breaker? And I said, I think it is. And I think out of pride and exhaustion, we split way. So then we had that crew all assembled, and we, we did a show for ABC and a show for NBC. And we worked uh, with Bill Cosby for a while. You know, the beloved Bill Cosby. Oh, yeah, the beloved. Uh, the, the pride um, we, of Philadelphia. <laughs> but we were at his studio in the Bronx, I think, when he was doing the the remake of The Huxtable Family. I'm not sure what that show was called, but we were animating parts of that. And then um, we did Home Movies, uh, which became a big hit for uh, um, Cartoon Network. And then uh, I sold both companies all at once. Why? Um, well, um, can, I, I'm going to, I stole, this actually happened, but I stole the line from Woody Allen. I'm just warning you ahead of time that I'm not a joke stealer. Okay, no, that's fine. I, I understand. That's, that's, I, I tweeted something this morning, and I said to a guy <laughs> I went to high school with, because I, I put up the other day, I said, if, if Trump runs with Christy, they'd be called uh, Trump and, and uh, Lump. And then, I, <laughs> and then he said, oh, and it, or it could be uh, the joke the joke and the fat man. And I asked him, I said, I like jerk better. And I went to college with this guy. I said, do you mind if I tweet this? If you do, I won't. He's not a comic or anything. And I said, but I just like jerk. He goes, yeah, do what you want. So I, I had to tell him. I had to clear it through him. Some people would have just taken it and say, oh, I changed the line. But it's good you said that because you know how it is when people yeah. steal jokes. It pisses us off. <laughs> I Well, for good reason. But I was in my office. And I got a call, um, and the name of the company was Tom Snyder Productions. And I got a call, and they said, we would like to buy Tom Snyder Productions. And I said, um, well, you know what? I'm having fun, and um, I'm an artist, and I don't really pander to money or anything else. So the answer has got to be no. And they said, that's too bad. It's for X million dollars. And I said, let me put Mr. Snyder on the line. <laughs> I love that. I love that Woody Allen bit. Yeah. It's from when he was asked to do doers. I think be the spokesperson for doers liquor or something. So you sold your company. Well, of course you would sell your companies. So then, then what do you sit there and do then? Because you had the control. And so, you know, anybody you have money, is that when you start, you know, that's getting, when I make a musical. And that's, so that's when you sat there. Now, how long ago did you sell the company? I sold the company. Well, at that point, it was like uh, in two th early 2000s. And um, 
I became an asshole for a very short period of time, which, um, due to my Quaker background, I always swore I wouldn't do, but I bought a boat and I went cruising, you know, deep ocean cruising, you know, and got into that whole life. And then I suddenly looked at myself and said, I'm turning into an asshole. I'm all, I'm not turning. I have now completely become a, a guy who wears boat shoes and, and I sold all that stuff and, um, went back to the mat and uh, to the shed really and started writing again and started writing some musicals and so I wrote some musicals for uh, some local clubs in Boston uh, commissioned musicals that were quite successful and then I decided well I'm gonna do one of my own and that pretty much brings us up to today now when you were an asshole did you have pants with anchors on them I know I didn't but they were um, it was khaki and I had a blue shirt and I would wear loafers with those I don't know how this happened because how did you usually dress before that where you just seemed like you're like a laid-back guy an artist type guy I was I'm like you probably jeans and t-shirt and a sweater and um, sneakers and and um, if I'm dressing up nicer sneakers right so you just you probably have don't you have your nicer sneakers I have well you know what it is I'm a big I I don't really wear I wear I guess I'm technically not not called sneakers I wear Vans or I wear you know like those kind of look or dark blue shoes I have a pair of camouflage ones I don't the the sneakers I wear I have a pair of sneakers for the gym and they're red and I really don't go to the gym much they're the only sneakers I don't wear basketball sneakers because I'm not going to play basketball I'm too old and I, but I do have like, I guess they, they're not boat shoes. I, I guess they're sneakers, but I have the different sneakers I like to wear. And I, I like, I, I'm, I, I'm, my, my go-to is always my black Vans. Uh, they're solid black Vans. They don't checks or anything on them. Yeah. So you can, you could, you could go to a, to a formal dinner in those. Uh, you could probably pull it off. I mean, I usually wear black loafers if I do that. Just, you know. Yeah. So so you so you go back so you, you 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 get rid of the asshole clothes you go back to your old clothes, and, yeah. And you start writing the musicals now. How are people are people enjoying your musicals? Yes, um, it's it's you know uh, this uh, the book that we were originally talking about the audio music audio musical um, is anyone all right is very new. Uh, it's only been available on Audible for. I don't know, a couple of weeks, and I haven't even, uh, I don't have a website for it. Um, I've just told my friends about it, and um, I haven't really started formal promotion except for uh, Jess, the woman who probably got in touch with you. Yes. To connect a connection from my old comedy days, and she's not, not really a musical connection, but I thought it would be fun to start talking about it with people, and um, so... The people I know, um, like, you know, friends always like, you know, what you're doing, I guess, or that's what they tell you. But, you know, it, it's, it is successful in that way. The, the trick is to find a small market that can grow into a bigger market of people who um, will give it a chance. Now, would you ever think of putting it on stage if it becomes popular, going at that route where you sit there and go, okay, you can see it live, or would that be too hard because you probably have to cast the original people? I would love to do it live. I think that would be so much fun. I love the stage. Ever since I was a little kid, I've been infected by the that absolute magical feeling of being in... I was in plays as a kid, and I really love it, and I like directing. Um, so if they'd let me direct it, that would be tremendous good fun. And even if they didn't, um, you know, if you read the history of musical comedies, uh, what was it? Irving Berlin doing um, Annie Get Your Gun. And there was one version of it, and I think they were out of town, you know, tryouts of the musical. And they said, and we need another song in the, you know, second act. And he just sat on the stairs of the Wilbur Theater. There's a great photo of him writing. Uh, that song they say that falling in love is wonderful is wonderful so they say and he just wrote i would love that i would love some harried producer to come up to me and say we need a funny song 
you know, at the beginning of the second act, with the, you know, it's a duet between these two people. It's like, that'd be a great way to finish off my professional career. That would be that. That'd be great. Now, are you working on anything else right now? Uh, no. As a matter of fact, my poor wife has to hear me bitching and moaning because I say I really don't want to start something else because I I don't have a company anymore. I, you know, when I had a company, they would promote things, and I've got to learn how to promote. I've got to learn Facebook. I've got to start doing Twitter again. I've got to. Um, I'm afraid to start something because I, I, as you know, I I have an obsessive nature, and it will be that's all I will do, and I'll say, "Oh, the hell with that last project." Then don't don't start that Pokemon Go. <laughs> have you done it? No, and that's something that I sit there and well, first of all, what's amazing is I had like a million downloads in one day, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, that's one of the things people say it's obsessive. So if you're obsessive, do not start the Pokemon. Yeah, I'm gonna stay away. I am gonna stay away. Now here's a question: through your life. How many times have you gotten confused with the name recognition of Tom Snyder, especially since you're in the entertainment business? <laughs> Has that happened to you a lot? And have you ever tried to use it as your advantage to get a good table? Well, uh, a funny thing is that when he died, a lot of people called me to say how sorry they were. <laughs> um, and I don't know what they're, you know, but they were very funny people who are doing that. But, um, he and I, I learned early on, even before I was in the entertainment business, when I'd started my software company as a teacher, um, it was called Tom Snyder Productions, and I got sued by him, you know, from his company in Philadelphia, which was also called Tom Snyder Productions. And um, I was told I couldn't use the name. And um, it was incredibly upsetting to me because I, I didn't know him that, of him that much, more of just of Dan Aykroyd. Right. Him. But um, so I had I'd never had a lawyer before and I um, got a lawyer who looked into the law and found out that whoever was more of a going organization or a going business got to use the name. And it turned out my business by that point, you know, I was only a year and a half into my business, but it was growing very rapidly. We were a bigger growing business and they lawyer said we can counter sue him and i said well let's not do that you know forget it just call him and tell him we won't counter sue that's <laughs> so crazy shut up um, we're running out of time and, i gotta yeah no no give all the info about your book now do you, you said you have to get back on twitter now what is your twitter well i don't even know I'm, don't, i have yet to get back on twitter you have to but i have a facebook page and it's called Is Anyone All Right? And now the book they can find on Audible? They would go to audible.com and type in Is Anyone All Right? And interestingly, I chose the word all right, which has two different spellings. Oh, so you get And it, it's kind of like your name, you know, it's like, you know, or with the division, you know, if people put in the wrong word. And all right is spelled with two words. It's the actual correct British spelling. Is anyone all right? Cool. Well, and it's not expensive. It's only, because it's only two hours long, I, I priced it uh, very inexpensively because I thought it would be priced as a two-hour experience. So it's nothing like as expensive as a regular audiobook. Well, cool, man. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. It was great fun. This is fun. So people, go look him up. Go look up the book. You got to get the book because, you know, and go go watch all Dr. Katz. And, and, you know, when he gets on Twitter, you just Google Tom Snyder and then we'll find him. Now, don't forget, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot. I tweet fun stuff. It goes to my Facebook. My Facebook is Steve Cooper. I also have Cooper Talk Radio, which I really don't update, but you can add me on there. Uh, my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 530 episodes up there. Um, you can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Also, iTunes, Stitcher, one word like me and Tom talked about, Cooper Talk. And Instagram and words with friends, because I will play you, is Cooper Talk 1. And finally, my other website, StopTheSalt.com. You know, when I got out of the hospital, I wrote that uh, the cookbook, it's 120 easy recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No, uh, no weird 
ingredients. Don't worry, you don't have the cumin. You don't need cumin. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna screw you with cumin. You can buy it on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. But if you buy it at StopTheSalt.com, I will sign it for you and I will make more money. And that's what it's all about. So anyway, go check out Tom Snyder. Google him. Google the book. Follow him on Facebook. Follow me at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.